Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Whip 12 podcast. Uh, you have heard me but once before, uh, so allow me to introduce myself. My name is uh, Logan, a shipwreck on uh, many of the things, uh, and I had the absolute pleasure of being the individual who talked about the U.S. Ariadna sectorial. Um, and behind the scenes, I had made a pitch uh, for this specific series inside of the Whip 12 podcast. So uh, myself and Head Chime, Ollie, uh, we're going to walk through game theory and design and how it applies to this game that we've all come to know and love as Infinity. Um, my premise, my thesis, is that Infinity leverages some wonderful concepts inside of game theory and game design to give a wonderfully complex, challenging, uh, and yet beautiful game system for us to play in, which is why there's so many podcasts and uh, battle reports and all those uh, good opportunities out there. So uh, what's going to happen is over the next uh, four episodes inside of this uh, sequence, the series, um, we're going to talk about many different concepts and how it applies to Infinity. Um, this first episode is going to be very game theory definitions heavy. Uh, and for that, I apologize, but it's a necessary building block that we're going to need going forward. Uh, in particular, um, we need all of these definitions, these understandings of uh, kind of an academic nature uh, before we can build into episode two, which will be all about core mechanics uh, inside of Infinity. Um, so before we break into some some discussions around game theory, um, I'll hand the, the floor over to Ollie for a couple of minutes here. Ollie? Hey, yeah, it's good to talk to you. I'm like excited to be here. Um, I think, as I was saying to you before, uh, I'm not kind of super academically familiar with uh, game theory and things, but you know, I've been playing Infinity for I don't know eight or nine years or something, uh, and I've played a lot of 40k and Magic and like various other you know card games and tabletop games and things like that. So I'm yeah, I'm super excited to kind of think about this from another angle, like maybe a more academic angle and relate it to this game that we all love. Um, yeah, and see what we can come up with. All right, great. So it sounds like uh, we're going to do some learning together. Uh, and that means if you have any questions while we go, feel free to pitch them. Um, I will come from the standpoint of... Uh, academics you know i don't have a, a degree in game theory or anything but i i love the discussion of it the types of games i've been doing it for a long time uh and ollie's going to be here to provide a little bit more infinity context to it in case i get anything wrong um as well as to i think uh, kind of develop a, a coherent understanding together um so without any further ado mm -hmm. um let's dig into what game theory is and what it's not uh, as well mm -hmm. as some key definitions and some key ideas here um, that I really want to dig into. So first off, um, in my youth, I wanted to be a game designer. I, I thought it would be very interesting to design video games, tell stories through that medium. And so I had to do a bit of research on my own to figure out what game theory was. Uh, and it turns out it's a bunch of math. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So I'm not a math magician. I don't um, you know, spend a lot of time uh, mathematically inclined. I, I have enough to be dangerous. 
Um, but game theory is a study of mathematical models of uh, strategic interactions among uh, rational agents. Now, that's a specific definition that um, I will put in the show notes if you're interested in knowing uh, more about that, uh, in particular, like game theory analysis of conflict by Harvard University Press, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm going to pull a bunch of these definitions and I'll make sure that there's show notes that you can take a look at if you're interested in more of these things. Now, there's a couple of key pieces, as there always are inside of these definitions, right? So mathematical models, uh, these mathematical models were originally used to try and explain why people made the decisions that they did. Uh, really, like, the most famous game theory demonstration is uh, called the Prisoner's Dilemma. Ollie, um, are you familiar with the Prisoner's Dilemma? Yeah, I'm vaguely familiar like, with yeah. that. Uh I should also say, like, I'm a, I'm a psychologist, so, <laughs> um, like, one of the things that I do and I think about quite a lot is, you know, uh, human behavior um, and, you know, experiments about human behavior and why people are more or less likely to take certain actions. Um, yeah, it's kind of my bread and butter. Well, perfect. You're going to be right at home then talking about some of these yeah. things. Um, so, again... Game theory looks to try and answer questions about what is the most optimal decision. Um, mm -hmm. And I find the tabletop wargamers like already do this. Uh, mm -hmm. When we get into these discussions about good, bad, and the ugly on the WIP-12, about faction analysis, we're already talking mm -hmm. about optimal play, suboptimal play. Um, yeah, so right. we're already using a lot of these natural game theory ideas we're just not mm -hmm. using game theory uh and analytics um but i would like to bring that towards you so when we talk about mathematical models a lot of them come up mm. um as just like squares uh in mm. particular you have uh option a and b versus option a and b which is really just what can i do and what can my opponent yeah. do and then you just compare them up based off of the outcomes and then you yeah. use math to explain this is the best course of action this is not so in the prisoner's dilemma yeah. right really quickly without getting into it because that's like an hour in and on its own um mm -hmm. the prisoner's dilemma basically says ollie you and i uh, rob a bank and we get caught and we are being interrogated by the police separately um, the system that we're going to analyze are our two decisions. So when you're being interrogated by the police in this make-believe world, you have two choices. The first mm -hmm. choice is to uh, talk and say, I did all the planning, um, or you can say nothing. Uh, and I have mm -hmm. the same two choices. So we would be able to develop the square as, in this case, we can just use like yes or no. Uh, yep. So do you talk, do you not talk, do you talk, do you not talk? Um, and when you can start to ascribe outcomes based off of two separate decisions, now you can analyze what's the best option. Um, mm -hmm. So if we both talk and we rat each other out, um, you know, we both go to jail for like five years. Uh, however, if I don't talk and you talk, um, I go to jail for 12 years, but you don't go to jail at all. And the reverse mm -hmm. is true for me. Um, and if we both don't talk, uh, then the DA tr trumps up a bunch of charges and we both go to jail for two years. Yeah. So what game theory wants to do uh, is talk about a whole bunch of different ideas and then how to optimize it. Um, mm -hmm. One of the first things inside of the prisoner's dilemma, like immediately, is uh, what type of game are you playing? And I will use the prisoner's dilemma as a way of walking through a series of different game theory concepts. 
Um, so the first one here is the second half of our definition, which is strategic interactions among rational agents. <laughs> so game theory only works if we assume people are going to make optimal decisions. Uh, if right. someone just wants to watch the world burn, um, game theory doesn't really work uh, because yeah. it. if you're not going to play optimally, then there's really no way to guess. The other mm -hmm. part is strategic interactions. Um, and I come from a space of building strategic plans and building tactical plans. Uh, so in tabletop war games, I find people use strategic play and tactical play interchangeably when mm -hmm. I have a very strong belief on this, they are not interchangeable. They are very specific and different. Um, so your strategy spans multiple iterations of the games. So if in Infinity, you're talking about your strategy is like, what type of player are you? My right. strategy... Okay. For those who have seen or listened to U.S. Ariadna uh, breakdown, my strategy with U.S. Ariadna is be aggressive, control the midboard, push buttons mm -hmm. after your opponent is dead. That's my strategy right. in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, so this is like strategy you're kind of saying is this kind of grand overarching thing that spans like maybe multiple games. It's like an approach more than correct. a kind of micro action. Absolutely. Uh, and then the tactical play is specifically in one game, one iteration of a game, the game we find ourselves in now, um, the like micro, do I go around this corner with my impetuous unit, smoke out the board mm -hmm. so that way I can bring up my attack pieces or something like that. Um, sure. The big difference here uh, for the difference between strategic and uh, tactical is the number of iterations. And iterations mm -hmm. is the first thing that I want to talk about. Okay. Um, so inside of uh, game theory, it talks about, are you trying to optimize play and outcomes in one game and one game only? Or mm -hmm. are you talking about an infinite series of games? Right? So typically in Infinity, we're worried about what's going on in this one match this one time. But tournament yeah. play actually considers three to four games. Right? Yeah. So if you're trying to maximize the number of victory points that you walk out of the game with because you're trying to push off your t the person that you're competing with, um, that drives a different style of gameplay and that forces different solutions. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because you know um, a lot of people that practice Infinity and maybe go to their LGS and play a couple of games a week, if that, they might focus a lot on tactics but not strategy. Whereas if you go to a tournament and you've got to grind like three, four, five games in a row, then that's when strategy starts to really come into it. And I've spoken to quite a lot of very high level, you know, top tier infinity players. And they'll say, you know, if I'm thinking about a tournament as opposed to casual or practice play, I will start thinking more about the general strategies of each faction and picking a, a faction that I want to take based on strategy rather than tactics. So um, there are different ways even of approaching infinity. Absolutely. Uh, and the only time uh, an infinite series of games matters is when more than one game will lead to an outcome uh, that is relevant. Um, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're just, if you're playing Kitchen Table Infinity, Kitchen Table Magic, yep. Warhammer 40k, what have you, you're just concerned about winning the game right now. 
Yes. But when it's a, a series that leads up in the tournament, right? You want to try and optimize what your outcome is. Uh, one of mm-hmm. my greatest experiences was the only tournament I've ever played in. I was playing each game individually. And that mm-hmm. impacted my tournament score because I wasn't paying attention to how many victory points I was going to have at the end. And I think that leads right. to why, like, USA Oriadna doesn't really sit high on the list of uh, tournament play purely because it's a very trading faction. So they just don't yeah, have a absolutely. lot of victory points at the end, right? They're, yeah. The, the, the high uh, top tier lists, you know, Vanilla Nomads, uh, Vanilla mm-hmm. Combine, have the mm-hmm. resilience. They they want to disable their opponent without th- sacrificing their uh, attack pieces versus mm-hmm. USA Ariadna just wants to break everything, including their own things. Yeah, definitely. Right? Well, I was just going to say, I think, you've really raised an interesting point here which is that when we think about these things obviously every faction infinity can be tactically interesting right because every faction you have lots of really uh, interesting deep tactical choices to make um on a moment by moment basis but strategically that's when some factions are maybe more or less interesting than others because some factions might have more strategic options um and like you said like us ariadna can sometimes feel a little bit tricky from that perspective. Absolutely. I'm glad you're, you're picking it all up. Good. You're an excellent student. So we have talked about now single iterations, multiple iterations. Um, the next piece that I think is important um, is the idea of symmetry and asymmetry. So symmetry means I, you and I have the same options. The prisoner's dilemma that we talked about is a symmetric game. But right. infinity is actually asymmetric because... Mm-hmm. While there is symmetry in the points that we're bringing, the decisions that we can take with those decisions are different. Um, Mm -hmm. And typically asymmetric games can be described also as like fundamental play is different. So if you consider Mm -hmm. uh, Netrunner the living card game, um, Mm -hmm. that is a perfect example of asymmetric games where you have a hacker trying to break into a corporation's data vault. While both players are attempting to achieve the same thing, there's victory points awarded for uh, scoring criteria, how they are going about it, and then the fundamental composition of the tactical choices that they can take are different. It's very similar to how Ariadna and all of its sectorials play against, like, nomads uh, or Mm -hmm. Yuching, Right, they just they just bring different tool sets, and each of the yeah. factions I find are very different in how they package all those tools. Yeah. Um, but uh, symmetry and asymmetry for a long time, board games like nineteen sixties uh, all the way through the eighties and nineties was like everybody starts the same, can make the same decisions. The only mm-hmm. thing that makes you different uh, is the decisions you make along the way. Now we get into asymmetry where you're just bringing things that are fundamentally different, which brings Mm -hmm. me to the next major thing that I want to talk about, which is relative and absolute value. Mm -hmm. Um, This is one that has taken me a while to truly understand. uh, And this is something that uh, in infinity is real hard. (laughs) So absolute value talks about something being the best Uh, Some option, some choice being the best over every other option and choice inside of that category Mm -hmm. versus relative value is just being better than what your opponent can do. 
Yeah. Um, this could also make sense. Uh, also be described as a comparative and absolute advantage in business terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a commerce degree, and one of the uh, lessons that I acquired from that degree was there was a simulation uh, during our strategic management course at the end of our four years in university. And it was a asymmetric game where everyone could build their corporation strategy a little bit different, go in a different area, it was also symmetric in that they had tools and tips and capabilities that were more or less the same as everybody else. But what was really the only differentiation was the people that you brought to the team. Right. In Infinity, your absolute advantage is based off of the hard stats that you see inside of your profiles. Um, Mm -hmm. Absolute advantage is super rare. And would yep. also be a reason why you strategically pick the faction that you're playing. Yeah, definitely. Right? So, Pano, strategically, has an absolute advantage in the shooting game because they have the best tools, in general, for ballistic mm-hmm. skill. Right? They just have higher ballistic skill than everyone else. So, mathematically, they have an absolute advantage in that category. Which means yep. that if you don't play to your absolute advantage, you're playing at a disadvantage. You see what that I'm saying? That makes sense. Right? So I guess what you're saying is that, like, if you've got two units that cost the same number of points and the Panos Fusilier is BS-12 and the other one is BS-11, like, they're, like, distinctly, they, they cost the same number of points. One of them just has an absolute advantage in one area over the other one. That's right. Is and that correct? That is correct. And you also yeah. need to be aware of what that advantage is because you're paying for mm-hmm. it. Right. Um, that certainly makes sense. Exactly. Uh, and then... More often, you have comparative advantage. So Mm -hmm. absolute Mm -hmm. advantage means I'm the best in this game all the time. Uh, A good example of that is like the cutter. The cutter Mm -hmm. with its hidden deployment, mimetism minus six, a stupid high BS value. It's just Mm -hmm. probably going to win every gunfight you're going to put it in front of. And that would be considered like an absolute advantage. And you're going to pay for that absolute advantage in its... I think it's like 100 points or whatever it is. Uh, like 97 now. 90, or something it's like 97 that. points. Some, something like that, yeah. Right, so you need to be aware of the reason why things cost the points that they do. So if it's absolutely the best option, you have to play to that. Otherwise, it's kind of a waste. But more often, and what a lot of people do just kind of inherently, is this thing called comparative advantage, where you do the math in your head, uh, at a tactical level and go, I can outshoot this one alley. So I'm just going to go in that direction. I have a, you know, big, big fire team. I can multi-spectrum visor away their things. So I'm a better shot. I have more dice. I hit on a higher number. Therefore, I'm going to go in that direction because that's the advantage mm-hmm. that's been given to you. And this is where we talk about optimization, You have to take the direction that's best for you and also why rational agents is important. If you're playing against somebody who doesn't have the best or near-perfect information, um, which is the next thing we're going to talk about, um, you will often find that they make suboptimal decisions and then that's how people lose the games. Yeah. Right? What about about, like absolute and relative advantage? Because... You can have absolute and relative advantage like in a game sense, but you can also do it in list building like outside of the game as well, right? Correct. Because um, and I'm this thinking is... a little bit um, 
Oh, sorry, gone. No, it's uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you can lose the game in deployment, and you can lose the game mm-hmm. in list building. Um, there are many different ways of building a war game, uh, mm-hmm. and Infinity is very clever in how it gives information to its players. And right. comparative and absolute advantage is based off of this other thing that I actually really briefly want to talk about, which is perfect and imperfect information. Okay. Um, so you need information to make calls about absolute and comparative advantage in order to go which direction, right? Sure, so sure. you can sit down and look at all of the army lists and all of the profiles for free. So really, it's just you, about, you know, how much time is someone going to spend learning what the different armies have? And this is where you I, see experience versus inexperience show. I feel called out. <laughs> well i mean it, that also means that you're good um this concept of perfect and imperfect information perfect information means you know exactly what everything is you've been afforded all the details and you're able to make the most optimal decision warhammer 40k is a perfect example of this there's no mm-hmm. structurally there's no systematic uh, obfuscation of information Right. When you yep. sit down, you can look at your opponent's army, build the list in your own app, whatever it is, uh, and yep. know exactly what all the stats are. You can have all of their stratagems in front of you. There's nothing preventing you from doing that, have access, and then just try and game out what they're trying to do. Now, that is yep. cumbersome and not at all enjoyable, and so not a lot of people do that. But in Infinity, there's actually a systematic way to obfuscate information. Hidden deployment, yes. yep. camo tokens. Right, those mm-hmm. are the way. Well, reserves as well. Uh, yep. Combat like jump, parachutes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anything that's hidden is information that your opponent doesn't have. So, mm-hmm. this is also where I find the friendliness of Infinity comes from. Like I've played people mm-hmm. who I've never met before, and everybody talks it all out together. Um, yes. And this is where that, like, we start to tend towards perfect information as you give things that your opponent uh, is not aware of. Um, one of the, uh, I think it was a Loss of Lieutenant podcast, talked about mm-hmm. tournaments and mental load. And yeah. how some people's strategy is just to try and keep their mental load as low as possible to keep making coherent, optimized decisions for yeah, like right. round three, round four of a long tournament. Um, yeah, you you mentioned yourself, right? Like a lot of the assumptions that we're going to make in these episodes are about rational actors, but actually fundamentally like humans aren't always rational actors. And one of the things that stops people being rational actors is cognitive load, right? If you can't remember things, if you don't pay attention to things, if you, you know, like just miss stuff straight up, then you're going to make irrational decisions um that might not matter if you're playing one game in a day but it really matters if you're playing your third or fourth game absolutely or you you didn't sleep well or your mind is somewhere else or whatever it is um you know Mm -hmm. some people play infinity with some form of inebriate uh in their hand Mm -hmm. a beer uh maybe it's an edible um and they're just (laughs) they're just trying to have a good time it's all legal here in canada right so we good um so Uh, That is one of those big things. So we talk about comparative and relative advantage, the points tax that is assigned to them. uh, And Mm -hmm. then 
the idea of perfect information. So you need yes. to make sure you understand what your sectorial is really good at and play to those strengths. Because if you don't, mm -hmm. then you're all, you're wasting the points that you've paid. Because in this symmetric game, we're going to assume mm -hmm. that your opponent is doing all the things that they need to be doing in order to play mm -hmm. optimally. May I yeah. may I go down a rabbit hole here? Absolutely. That, that might be worth exploring. So. Do you think that if we're talking about absolute and relative advantage and this idea that it's obviously important that you push your units to take advantage of the things they're good at, do you think this might be why toolbox units are slightly maligned by the community? Because you pay a lot of points for things that you won't use as an entire package, right? If something's very good at close combat, very good at shooting, has very high willpower, and you're in a game and you use, let's say, one of those three tools then you're paying a lot of points for a package that you're maybe not using in its entirety. That might explain why a lot of players look down on units like that, because they kind of can't use the entire package every time and they're questionably wasting points. Like, do you think that might be an explanatory factor? Uh, absolutely. And uh, very well pointed out. And I, I actually have, let's go further down this rabbit hole, right? So let's talk about the fundamental of a toolbox unit. Um, ignoring infinity in and of itself, right? There's mm -hmm. some there's some fundamental assumptions that we can take about any sort of turn-based tabletop war-playing game. And that is, uh, there's some sort of turn sequence. Be, like, no one's going to be acting all at the same time because it's not a video mm -hmm. game. It, there, you kind of have to go piece by piece and adjudicate the decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to spend some sort of resource to get your piece to do something. That resource could be a turn, it could be an order, yeah. uh, an activation, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then we also assume that these choices are mutually exclusive, uh, which is a, a term that was actually a little bit down my list. Um, the idea of mutual exclusivity is you pick one, you don't get to pick the other. So sure. in the toolbox unit, as you described, you can BS attack or you can cc mm -hmm. attack so having mm -hmm. somebody that's naturally good at both leads me to question is there a points task uh, a points task tax ascribed mm -hmm. to that so yeah. if i'm paying yeah. for a toolbox unit that has a high cc value a high bs value high armor high all these other yeah. things you know in other games it's a high cost with multiple options that i'm not going to be able to use because i can only ever use one of these things at the same time Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, I would say that if you're paying a tax to do something that you're probably not going to be able to do, um, it it isn't going to be as good. But there are specific mm -hmm. times when there is still value in that. But sure. the most important resource is the points, the thing that drives mm -hmm. the symmetry. Yes. So I think conceptually... If I have one piece that can do multiple things, or I can have multiple pieces that do each one job incredibly well, and I have enough resources to activate all of those like different pieces, then I would go towards the things that are specialists in one area. Mm -hmm. um, so if we talk about like absolute and relative advantage inside of one's own list building, not even in comparison yeah. to your opponent, uh, I think that's why you see certain sectorials play more or less the same lists every single time. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes um, sense. Because there's certain things that you're just like, I just, I know that this is 
absolutely better than my other options. So let's say mm-hmm. uh, in Infinity, we talk about vanilla versus a Sectorial. Yeah. If you take a Sectorial and you don't play a fire team, you're paying the tax of not having access to all the profiles in vanilla and then not mm-hmm. using the thing that you paid for, which is yeah. the fire team setup. So now that we know if you sit, if you play a sectorial, you're pretty much expecting to see some sort of fire team on the board. The question right. is There's, what fire team are you going to put together? Yeah. There's only one other advantage to sectorials really, right? Which is increased availability of certain units, but That's even that true. one's tenuous, right? Because like sometimes in vanilla your availability might be two and then in sectorials three and you kind of have to think to yourself, do I really want to take three of the same thing? So more often than not it's fire teams, really. It, that's very true and I, I find the availability of certain units to be not enough of a swing to not yeah. have access to two, three, four, five other sectorials of really yeah, good right. tools. Like if you yeah, look definitely. at Ariadna, if you play vanilla Ariadna, that is that is five sectorials worth of tools. Right. Um, Nomads uh, is another really good example where Corregidor, mm-hmm. Bakunin, and Tunguska all play so differently. And if yes. you just select the best models out of all of those things to achieve your grand strategy, I think you're going to be more successful uh, mm-hmm. than trying to drive down any one of the particular sectorials. And there's a lot of discussions sure. right now about the effects of the new fire team rules. Yeah, um, definitely. And the meta has definitely been shook up. They No one mm-hmm. really knows yet what the outcomes are, and they won't until they achieve a hundred games with the new yeah. fire team rules. Now there's very intelligent, very Probably experienced people uh, like yourself who can make, I think, informed calls about it. Uh, but there's just going to be a bit of a delay mm-hmm. as people learn sure. from experience. And also let's be honest here, right? Even if someone's very experienced with infinity and has years in the game, we're still just making educated guesses, right? Um, I don't oh, yeah. want to uh, present anything that I say is any more than an educated guess because it's not. Um, I'm going to be very honest about that. And um, But what I specifically wanted to talk about here as well, exactly what you were saying, is um, there's been this interesting tonight dynamic in N4 between Hack Islam Vanilla and Hassassin Bahram, um, which has been really fascinating because both factions play very, very similar lists to the point where like 11 or 12 of the units will commonly overlap. Um, and it's led people to debate a lot about kind of which faction's better, whereas Assassins brings the fire team, so they get slightly better shooting. And then Vanilla Hack Islam gets one or two mercenary picks that are kind of slightly better at you know certain other things. Um, that's been a really interesting dynamic to see how much debate it causes when lists are broadly the same, but they've got maybe one or two areas of difference. Um, it's been really nice to see that because it's quite sort of, well, in a way I find that interesting because it's, there's a creativity there to thinking about, you know, what, what, what value do I get out of one unit, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, uh, in all of these discussions, the one piece that's missing is the objective the thing that we haven't really started to dig into yet are the missions. Is the classified yeah. deck is yeah, the, absolutely. the thing that you're trying to achieve. And I mean, we'll dig into it more, I think, in uh, episode two as we'll stay in, mm. in uh, definitions here and then move over to that. But the, yeah. the idea 
that all of these lists and all of these like concepts and the tailoring and is this mm-hmm. comparatively the best? Is this the absolute best? What am I paying the tax for? All of it leads yep. towards what am I trying to achieve? And then yes. that goes yep. to your strategy. Is your strategy complete the mission, push the buttons, grab the HVTs, survive along the way? That builds you a separate list than if it's the opponent can't push buttons if you disable their mm-hmm. hands as, you know, mm-hmm. just quote Starship Troopers. Yeah. Right? Great film. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So good. Uh, all right. So uh, that kind... I, I think that's pretty good for that rabbit hole. So let's move on to a couple of other pieces here. Um, mm-hmm. Some of these things... Uh, some of these definitions don't come into play in Infinity, but I think are worth thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. One is the concept of zero-sum and non-zero-sum. Right. Sure. Uh, right. And so uh, a non... Well, a zero-sum game really means that... All the things that move back and forth in the system have to come from the players. So mm-hmm. uh, a zero-sum game is like playing Monopoly with no bank. For me to win, Ollie has to lose. So anything that I gain has to come from Ollie. And the reverse is true that anything Ollie gains has to come from me. Uh, zero-sum games, I think, find stalemates uh, and kind of a grind set pretty quickly. Um, Infinity, obviously, is a non-zero-sum game. Now, the one piece in here that is worth talking about in non-zero-sum is victory points. Uh, And victory points are the reason why people win or lose. Everything you do relates back to your victory points. In a zero-sum game, if I were to win victory points, those victory points would actually come from Ollie. Um, yeah. And the ver- yeah. reverse would be true. But Infinity is a non-zero-sum game, and I think that's the way that that should be. Um, I'm I'm allowed to score points. You're allowed to score points, and it's a race to just acquire the most victory points at the end. Yeah. Um, another piece that's in here is simultaneous or sequential. Uh, simultaneous games playing four games of Infinity at the same time against four separate opponents. Not a good idea. Don't recommend doing <laughs> that. Um, so obviously, all of these games, especially in a tournament setting, are going to be considered sequential. One game has to finish before you can start playing the second. Um, and then there's the other idea and the last one that I, I really want to highlight here is infinitely long games where the mm-hmm. game has no real conclusion um, right. and I think it's important to highlight the time frame because it drives different decisions in a finite game one that has a very clear conclusion be it a number of rounds or a, the chess clock stuff like that Um, It makes sense in a game where you're trying to get past a certain point. It makes sense to have some sort of conclusion. But in uh, zero-sum games, it makes sense, actually, for games to run infinitely. If you're playing Monopoly and you are playing without a bank in a zero-sum, then the game's conclusion is achieved when one person just runs out of money. Once you have zero money, the game's over, and sometimes the game needs to run for a year and a half before you would reach that conclusion. Um, an infinitely <laughs> yeah. long infinity game would be very interesting to watch where it would just be table your opponent or the first yeah, person to, right. to 10 victory points. You know, Settlers of Catan yeah. rules where Settlers of Catan says the first person to X number of victory points wins. Um, if we were to play infinity with an infinite number of turns and it just be the first person to get 10 victory points wins would fundamentally change how people play the game 
yeah, definitely. I think it would encourage uh, maybe quite a lot of aggression because if we weren't forced to do things in a certain amount of time, like three turns, um, it would mean that I could play a very like grindy kind of attritional like sort of aggressive type strategy and come out on top quite reliably. Um, Absolutely. By basically not scoring OPs for like three or four turns and making sure you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that would be quite interesting to see. Yeah. So all of these conversations, all of these different ideas about game theory allow us to understand what is the kind of the fundamental basis of mm -hmm. patterns, uh, of how the system's going to interact. Um, yeah. What are the things that we are allowed to do? What are the things that we are not allowed to do? What could we change to experience a much different play experience leading towards what is the objective? What are we trying to achieve here? Um, and mm -hmm. ga game theory yeah. likes to really like mathematically optimize outcomes. And game theory has been yeah. used yeah. in economics. It's been used in business. Mm -hmm. It's been used as a way of explaining um, like how machine learning is going to work. Yeah. In I mean, I, I think about it in like social psychology and stuff as well. You know, how people are going to behave, like what decisions they're going to make, um, mm -hmm. things like that. That's important. Yeah. Um, fun fun little tidbits uh game theory um was actually uh they had like the game theory games where you had to develop an algorithm uh that was going to try and uh optimize some sort of thing and they they gave mm -hmm. the different things you know it was a i think the game that they chose was zero sum symmetric mm -hmm. infinitely long uh and then once a certain outcome was achieved then the game was over and so you had to try and optimize that so by understanding right. all of these concepts, we can now sit down and go, what am I trying to achieve and how do I build mm -hmm. towards that? Um, yeah. Which leads uh, kind of to the fundamental nature where we talk about what is infinity at its core using some of these game theory discussions. Um, so it's about victory points. So the, the way that the game ends... Uh, is time so at the end of three rounds yeah. who has the most victory points so we immediately mm -hmm. now know that is a non-zero sum yeah. sequential finite game mm -hmm. uh I guess, with i guess like okay. in infinity we technically call it objective points i guess Fair. but that's what most other games would call victory points because um, yeah, like that's an important definition uh an important right. differentiation to make because it's objective points and then there's isn't it victory points uh in a tournament so, setting where yeah, it's in yeah, between right. each so, of the games okay so objective points are the number the the number of objectives you did in a mission like pressing x number of buttons and like you win a game if you have more objective points than your opponent um and ties are broken by objective points so if i won a game with 10 and another person won a game with nine i would place above them in the rankings but we also have victory points which is how many troops you had left alive uh which is not zero sum right because you know uh not necessarily because we can both have like 300 at the end technically um actually well maybe it is i don't know that might be mistaken but anyway victory points are how many troops you have alive um and that also breaks ties as well so if i won a game and had all of my troops left alive and you won a game and you had fewer of your troops left alive i would be placed above you in the rankings uh if our objective points were the same so the the order of priority in infinity it goes to uh the tournament standing so whether you won or lost obviously 
Then it goes to the objective points. So how well you won by, like how many points you actually got uh, in terms of objective actions. And then it goes to victory points, which is how men how much of your army was left remaining. That's that's the pri like the order of priority. Does that make sense? Oh, it absolutely does. And that like in a very succinct way explains how complex this game gets because yeah, super complex in, yep. in tournament play and i think the best way to do it is uh explain the system in its most complexity and then you, we can just trim <laughs> stuff out in, in its most complexity there's there's three things that you're trying to prepare for and make decisions yeah. in yeah absolutely right? Um, so when it comes time to build the list, you need the list that can achieve objective points. You need uh -huh. a list that uh, can stand up and have you the most number of victory points and yep. give you the most number of tools to solve tactical situations inside yep. of the map, right? And yeah, then, right. which leads me to the next thing that I want to talk about, which is the map, right? The, mm -hmm. the other piece that we haven't addressed um, we've talked a little bit about missions. We've talked a little bit about objectives. What we haven't talked about and the thing that will tank certain lists mm -hmm. is how the board is built. If, yep. if you sit down and you build a board that favors one play over the other, naturally you're giving people an advantage. You know, if you, yep. uh, the classic like Kamau sniper behind a link team of five well mm -hmm. four other fusiliers parked in a sniper mm -hmm. tower in their deployment zone and they yep. can see everything that is a much different situation than if it's a tightly packed board so yeah my whole point in talking about the board that is set up is something that can't really be controlled there wouldn't mm -hmm. really be a way of saying uh, you have to have this many number of terrain pieces and they have to be this far apart, but it's a piece that you really need to understand the yeah, core definitely. mechanics of the game in order to set up properly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it's a big, it's a big deal for your strategic decision-making, right? And strategic, obviously talking long-term because if we pick a faction that, you can't sustainably play a long range firepower game like across three, four, five missions, then it's a strategy that they don't have access to and it might be a less attractive faction to us. Um, so I don't mean tactically in terms of like play by play, I mean strategically. Like if you can't do this across multiple games, if you don't have access to good snipers, good HMGs or whatever, then that faction has a weakness. Absolutely. Um, which is. You, are you looking at my notes? I feel like you're looking at my notes. So uh, where I wanted to go with this and really what I want to spend the last 15 to 20 minutes of this episode talking about is uh, definitions are great. However, what do I do with these things? And I yeah, wanted to talk about the strategy and the so what's that you can pull out of looking at all of these definitions mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. understanding... And this isn't infinity. This is like big broad view. Every single game, war game that uh, our listeners want to sit down and play. I encourage you to think about what your strategy is. How is that going to achieve whatever your objectives are in a way that is uh, agnostic of the systems mm -hmm. that you're playing. But we haven't talked about any real core concepts inside of infinity beyond like scoring criteria. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Because... Every game more or less is the same. 
right? Um, what we're talking about is why people make decisions. Uh, and mm-hmm. if it's not super apparent, I am a strategist at work. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I don't really want to get into what I do for a living, um, but I spend a lot of time thinking about what decisions do we make in what order in order to optimize mm-hmm. whatever our outcomes are. I'm a strategist sure. when it comes time to play tabletop war games. I just, I like the idea of an infinite series of decisions and optimizing outcomes. So in your tabletop war game, it's the symmetry, non-zero-sum sequentiality with imperfect information that really drives how I want to make decisions. Um, yeah. I mention imperfect information because I'm not a computer. Uh, with experience, I will learn what units are going to be better than others, but I know that I'm going to forget things. So I always assume that I there's something that I'm missing, even if it's a system that affords me perfect information. Mm-hmm. Um, the sequential part of it, whatever. The non-zero sum, symmetric, asymmetric, um, as well as cooperative, non-cooperative. Uh, we assume that we're adversarial in this, mm-hmm. but it's the symmetric, non-symmetric, and non-zero sum that really come down to the core of I'm trying to achieve something. How do I achieve that thing? Uh, mm-hmm. And I believe in building tabletop wargaming lists uh, that are really just like offensive, defensive, and then what's my backup plan? Uh, so for my friends who are listening to this episode have heard me talk about this a lot. Um, when I sit down and I'm planning, I always try and make the decision that enables the most number of decisions down the decision tree. Uh, this being an audio medium, obviously I can't draw you a decision tree, but it's just a branching series of decisions. So when I build a list, when I build an army, when I pick a faction, sub-faction, sectorial, army, whatever... I'm looking for the thing that has an offense that works the way that I want. And by offense, I mean completes objectives and generally punches the other units. Because it's a tabletop war game. We know we're going to be shooting and getting into combat. The second part is I need some sort of defensive thing. That defense could be in a stat line. That defense could be a particular type of unit. Um, And then the last thing is reserves. And the reserves part of it is something I've come to start leaning on more and more uh, as a lot of games are developing alpha strike patterns. So I think the reserves that start off the board are super important. So when you sit down and let's talk about pre-game and then when you get into the game, and this is again, agnostic of any of the systems. Mm. When you sit down, you wanna play your pieces, put your units down where you can aggressively pursue your uh, objectives as well as beat down the objective scoring thing that your opponent has. You want to play defensively enough to weather the storm because your opponent is the most dangerous on their first turn. They have the most number of pieces available to them. And then have some sort of reserve punch Uh, be it offensive or defensive, that cannot be accessed by your opponent. And that's why deep strikers, it's a Warhammer Mm -hmm. 40k term, but parachutists, um, anything that can just be taken off the board and go, no, you're not allowed to deal with this. Um, That's why things like hidden deployment, 
Camo tokens less, but the parachutists, particularly deployment zone parachutists, are super, super good in Infinity. Yeah. Um, also, the Deep Strikers uh, in Warhammer 40,000, um, things like that are just naturally better, uh, as well mm-hmm. as anything that allows you to make up for space and time. Um, yeah. yeah. Because if you can just drop people, you know, a combat drump, uh, jump, uh, for instance, is very strong because one of the big issues is your deployment zone in any of these war games. Um, the tax that you pay for in Infinity, uh, Parachutist, Combat Jump, uh, that tax is purely based on the fact that you're putting a unit almost anywhere on the board. Yes, there's a risk yeah. of failure. There always is. Um, but you're putting it anywhere on the board, saving yourself another resource, which is orders. Um, yep. In Warhammer Age of Sigmar, those deep striking units are, you're saving yourself a turn, but also your opponent's ability to act on those tools, those models, those yep. figures. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, being kind of like absolutely better, right? Um, which is why you can't do many of them. Uh, another thing worth talking about just uh, very quickly um, is the prevalence of alpha striking or having a first turn where you ignore your objectives and you just seek mm-hmm. to cripple your opponent. Uh, in Infinity, the alpha strike is a dangerous proposition for both players because <laughs> it is you're paying that tax in order to strategically tr- just try and break your opponent before your opponent has a chance to act, but you have to yes. win first turn. But there's also a second part of this where the mission may not reward you for going first. Yeah, that's um, true. That's where true. if, because it's not simultaneous turns, there's actually like half the missions that actually are built in favor of the person who goes second. Things like, panic room armory uh if the round scores you want to be the one acting towards the round scoring time frame uh yeah. if, if that makes sense so when we look at all of these definitions we really need to break out what is going to be the strongest and the weakest uh in a abstract sense before we can actually start building all these tips and tricks and tools uh in order to go win us these games yeah, that certainly makes sense. Um, yeah, and there's quite a lot to think about there. You know, I think in terms of how you approach the game, how you're thinking about your play and your opponent's play. And the the weird coupling of it is, and perhaps, Ollie, you're like the perfect person to talk to about this, is how one's personality drives how people seek to solve problems. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, right. really, really interesting stuff. Uh, because... Everybody kind of goes at it a little bit differently. And I I like to lean on Magic the Gathering color combinations to really Mm -hmm. describe how people like to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So some some of my friends, who I won't say uh, what their names are, but uh, I have one friend who I would... Are you familiar with the color combinations? Yeah, yeah, I play a lot of Magic. Well, there you go. Um, One... One friend I would describe as a blue-white control type of player. Sure, um, they're a nomads player. <laughs> I will neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> um, but looking to just 
control of much of the space as possible without really putting any of their pieces at risk. Right. Right? Um, They're looking to optimize the number of effects that they can have without Mm -hmm. risking any of their pieces. So they may not be the most offensive but their defensive game is super strong and yeah. a defensive game in infinity looks a little bit differently than it does in magic the gathering or warhammer <laughs> or whatever it is but a a player who tends to go defensive is one that wants to keep as much of their stuff alive as possible at a tactical level um mm-hmm. and then strategically what that manifests as is probably a higher victory point result right yeah usually right. yeah um versus I have another friend uh, who just doesn't have time for any of that nonsense uh, and will go fast and explode things. Um, <laughs> and they, when they play magic, is like mono red, uh, mono green, yeah. where it's, I will, they will ramp, uh, they co- collect the most amount of resources in order to create the biggest monster that can't possibly be defeated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in Infinity, a aggressive offense can be super overwhelming considering mm-hmm. infinity is a super deadly game uh and we're going to yeah, talk about the yeah, deadliness of it uh in the second episode mm-hmm. um but just like lots of stuff dies uh in yep. warhammer Forty Thousand, i would say a really good description of an offense army would be like tau right now um mm-hmm. with the most recent codex that tau has come out with uh it's very aggressive and it will like turn one punch a hole in the majority of the armies out there with its combination of uh moving and shooting uh pre-game yeah. moves a bunch of other stuff mm-hmm. yeah um, and i think um in infinity like ariadna does it really well right now you know with the bears the unknown ranger like stuff like that um absolutely. there's a lot absolutely. of ariadna that punches super hard yeah uh and i find in infinity more so than other games it's a it's a distance problem uh Mm -hmm. and i rely on the impetuous phase and impetuous orders to really chew Mm -hmm. up a lot of that distance Um, i'm a big fan of uh desperados and if i can get a desperado to go 12 inches uh for free that's really good considering the deployment zones are only ever you know 24 inches apart you know, I can go from the edge of my deployment zone at 12 inches to the center of the board. We're going to get into a lot of this, like, board math in the next mm-hmm. episode mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. this has already been kind of a long time of talking about very abstract feelings and thinkings. Um, but we'll get into yeah. some uh, Infinity stuff in episode uh, two. Maybe maybe we should just, like, very quickly apply the uh, the definitions that we've spoken about in one or two sentences to infinity and like the kind of things yeah. you might be thinking about. No, so, for sure. Um, um, I can't I can't remember all of them, but I think you mm-hmm. started with like tactical kind of considerations, yeah. right? Which might be if you're approaching the mission from an objective's perspective, like do you want to press buttons or are you going to be more aggressive and try and remove your opponent's pieces or are you going to try and control the board? You know, like deploy mines and repeaters and like you know slow them down. They might be tactical considerations like what are you spending your orders on Uh, absolutely that be correct that absolutely correct uh and if we if we want to talk about tactical level decisions uh that are reflected in the three things that i think people need to consider which is offense defense uh and reserves um Mm -hmm. a tactical level decision for reserves uh is deploying your people prone Mm-hmm. They just hide them out of the way. <laughs> Keep your stuff alive as long as possible because you need them to be actors in your second and third turn. Uh, yeah, makes sense. Offense uh, in Infinity is like 
for one, um, people talk about like a hit piece, mm-hmm. something to go forward and break things, uh, anything yeah. with Impetuous, because Impetuous is only ever on your turn, and it only ever gets you closer to your opponent. Um, and then defense, and this is one that I went back and forth with, and I don't 100% believe in it, but I'm willing to admit other people do, which is the concept of an ARO piece. Um, mm-hmm. I think defense tactically shows up as high armor pieces, high physical pieces, things that you can dodge Mm -hmm. with, uh, things that can just tank stuff. Um, And then the other kind of more abstract defense piece is somebody sitting down an alley somewhere that's just going to slap down anything that comes around the corner. Um, I, I for one, truly enjoy when I kill my opponent's pieces on their active turn. That's a great time for me. Um, But that... uh, is a style of play that I think mathematically doesn't pan out all the time, but when it does, Mm -hmm. it's a real wrench in the works. Yeah, I think also like defensively, uh, I've written a couple of articles about how I I kind of think about ARO pieces in three different ways. You've got your hard AROs, which are like the snipers and they stand up and they take shots. then you've got like medium arrows, which are kind of maybe a bit disposable. Like they might be a dude in suppressive fire, like a foxtrot or something. You kind of half care about oh, yeah, okay. it, but you don't don't really like, you know, it's minus six to be hit with the mimetism and the suppressive, sure. maybe minus nine with cover. Um, kind of disposable, but does something. And then you've got really soft arrows that just control the board in a very soft way, like mines and repeaters. Like they're utterly disposable, don't care if they die. Sometimes they literally don't cost an order in the case of mine layer. Um, and they might waste like one or two of your opponent's orders, but they cost you just points in some cases, not orders and things like that. So that's how I think about like the defensive game in Infinity. Like I kind of sort things into those categories. I think those are the best ways I've heard of describing ARO pieces. Um, and the the disposable nature of your very soft aro pieces where you're just you're just throwing stuff out like who cares um yeah exactly mm -hmm. like if it costs them an order you are doing something defensive right you're wasting their resources yeah yeah. Um, you're making them spend resources reacting to what your plan is Uh, another way of describing what a defensive style play would be um pillow fort uh castling Mm -hmm. other things other titles kind of like that um the um yeah yeah um, which so I was going to think about strategic as well. If you're done with tactical, if, yeah. I don't know if there's more for tactics. No, I think um, uh, I think that's a really good roundup of tactical. Yeah. So for strategic, it might be how you approach a tournament. So for example, if you saw three or four missions and they were like annihilation and then firefight or quadrant control, you might say, well, you know, I can play aggressively in all of these. So my game plan across multiple games is going to be to get aggressive and to remove my opponent's pieces. Um, that might depend on your faction. It might depend on your list and stuff, but this is like cross game kind of macro stuff. It's not about individual orders. It's about how you're approaching an ongoing event. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, And I would say you could also go one step further and go, what are my scoring criterias? And the victory points are a big part of it. My strategy is to score as many of the objective points as possible and reduce my opponent's victory points as much as possible um, while, while trying to keep my victory points as high as possible, which is like, just go, it's like telling somebody go win the game. Um, Yeah. Win win the game. Yeah. Which is, uh, that's hard. That's not easy to do. Um, (laughs) And when you talk about like ARO pieces in particular, Mm -hmm. if we, know that your opponent uh is going to try and make a run with a 
you know, big fire team, right? Big fire teams are a, a, a very aggressive hit piece. It's a big stick that you can break across people. And if you try, if you, the defensive options that you talked about tactically, you know, the hard ARO, that like medium one, and then the disposable one in a individual game, it makes more sense to tend towards hard ARO pieces. You might be risking victory points by trying to intercept your opponent's victory points, but in an individual game, the victory points don't matter all that much, but in a tournament setting, it actually skews towards the disposable nature of reactions. Yeah, if you can, definitely. If you yeah. can consume yeah. points at no cost to you or a low cost, mm-hmm. do it. Um, yeah. You know, like a flashbot, seven points, if you're able to right. Sure, you may have 10%, 15%, 20%. You have a chance of stopping the runaway Rambo. Mm. Um, it might be a worth it tool yep. to bring with you uh, that doesn't pan out all that often, but it pans out enough to win you an extra number, a couple of victory points in order to yeah, win, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So risking seven points, because it's typically what the flash pulse bot across all the sectorials is mm-hmm. if you're risking seven points to just put the door stopper out versus risking maybe 37 points for yeah. a sniper ARO. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even if you were to look at some of the more expensive ones, like the Kamau sniper, the Grenzer sniper with marksmanship, uh, yeah. any of the MSV two snipers, like you're North of mm-hmm. 30 points. That's 10% of your list. You know, how mm-hmm. much are you willing to lose? in this game that is uh super super deadly uh yeah it is it is yeah um, it's interesting so when you when you think of the strategic level offense you need to figure out how you're going to score points and break your opponent's victory points mm-hmm. um so you need hardcore hit pieces be they um maybe templates uh i find at 150 points templates submachine guns uh, yep. and, and rifles, combi rifles are super important. Um, but when you get to 300 points, those become less important and less useful because the board, there's just so much more distance. Um, so if you're playing in a, an infinity tournament at 150 points, you bring mm-hmm. separate things than at 300 points. Yeah, definitely. Um, like you change your strategy, yeah. um, long term. Um, what about like absolute and relative, advantage in terms of like infinity how would how would you think about that uh i think about it constantly because i think that's the only way to do it uh absolute Mm -hmm. and relative advantage goes back to that perfect and imperfect information Mm -hmm. um my example on how i dealt with this was uh i was playing in a tournament the only tournament i ever Mm -hmm. played in which was uh weekly games um, on mm-hmm. TTS and that afforded right. me the opportunity to like we were generating lists prior to every game to achieve whatever yeah, the mission yeah. was right yeah. um, but what I didn't have was information on what my opponents were playing and so I like had brought um, the three other people uh, that I like shepherded into the tournament I brought them with me and we had like a separate coaching chat because what we didn't have was access to information and we didn't know what was comparatively going to be advantageous or absolutely going to be advantageous. There were four, four separate sectorials and what we 
we had enough computational power. There were four brain stems there working. Um, and what we didn't know, well, what was what, what were our opponents playing and what was going to be good? We've only ever played each other. Yeah. We only know really how each other's factions are working. What are we going to mm-hmm. do about this? It was a wonderful learning experience. But the coaching chat was lit up every week. Um, one, talking about what the board was. And then in the board going, okay, so you're running Varuna. Uh, mm-hmm. This board for Varuna, you want to put your sniper somewhere around here as we all kind of like tackle the problem. Um, right. So how I deal with and how I think about comparative and relative advantage is your ability to understand what your list is going to do versus your opponent. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And yeah. the challenge with that comes from experience like i didn't mm-hmm. i didn't start really piecing this stuff together until i had played 30 infinity games and started mm-hmm. to understand what i think everyone's kind of gut feelings were and then i had yeah. to put a little bit of gray matter to it and then develop my understanding of these different concepts and that's really yeah. started to pay off in uh like the win rate and my understanding of the game and what pieces are good for and when fire teams changed i just kind of shrugged and went uh, this is fine it's fine uh like everyone's going to be different at the end of the day we can still play the same game so it doesn't matter yeah so one of the things that i do as well because i'm a bit of a nerd and i have too much free time is that i have like a massive spreadsheet of face-to-face odds for like nearly every single gun in hackers i have a list of like what its odds are against generic aro pieces so against like a total reaction remote, a Kamal sniper, uh, an avatar, uh, you know, like a bunch of stuff like that. Um, I think superficially, it's easy to point to a spreadsheet like that and be like, oh, this is absolute advantage because I know that this piece has an 80% chance of scoring a wound, whereas this other piece has a 70% chance. So superficially, like, it seems like that's what it is. But I also bear in mind quite a lot that we're paying points for these pieces. And so if one of them costs 60 points and the other one costs 30 points, I don't think it would be fair to say that one necessarily has an absolute advantage over the other because they occupy different list building kind of spaces and criteria. So I don't know whether that comes into the definition or not, but it seems hard to call something like strictly better than something else if you're paying way more for it. Um, I don't know if I've misunderstood or no, if that's like a you, valuable thing. You have definitely understood and it is a valuable thing. Uh, and it's a valuable thing because while you can analyze profiles in a vacuum, uh, there is a price to pay for taking certain things because it prevents you from taking other things. Yeah, absolutely. That's right? the big thing. That, and yep. that's the huge piece, which brings yep. us back to our discussions around strategy. Yeah, definitely. So, like, Infinity both is and isn't a spreadsheetable game, right? Because on some level, you can go, oh, this piece is just better than this other piece at killing stuff, but then you have to build a list. Yep. And when you build a list, like, this is kind of, um, it's very constrained. You can't take everything you want to take. So you might actually take a worse piece, right, that has less uh, relative or absolute advantage because you might have a different strategic approach, which might be going for objectives instead of aggression, just as an example. No, uh, totally. And I think you've you've kind of like really underlined the thing that makes list building and playing Infinity closer to an art than it is a science. If Infinity was really just take all the best pieces, then it would be a game where absolute value and absolute uh, superiority, mm-hmm. absolute advantage, mm-hmm. 
would be the most relevant. But mm-hmm. Infinity, I find, uh, skews more towards art because it's how you apply these things. Because yeah, you, you can take an absolute advantage ballistic skill piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the points that you're paying for it, you know, it's 75% of your list and you're not able to do anything like, yeah, sure, you activate it once and it won you the gunfight, congratulations, but you're no closer to winning your objective. Yeah, um, that's really important. Right? Really important. So when we talk yeah. about the strategy, how you want your offensive and defensive and your reserves to work, um, it's important to note, like, yes, this one piece in my army is the best gunfighter. This one piece is my best close combat this one piece is my best engineer um you know this one piece is my best doctor whatever um the best comes with a price and that price prevents you from making other decisions which is why i think there's so much discussion like nearly all the infinity discussion really comes down to list building Um, yeah a lot of it does when you're trying to kind of outthink your theoretical opponent like if (laughs) If I was, the style of discussion that we would have, if I was building U.S. Ariadna list to win a tournament um, versus a U.S. Ariadna list to beat you uh, mm-hmm. or to beat uh, Raymond, like it's just mm-hmm. the the decisions you make are different, uh, which, are. which yeah. is one of the key foundations in my thesis that like infinity is super beautiful uh, and complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because you have to employ art in how you achieve yeah. your goals and you can't science your way through this. You can't math your way through it. Um, I, I think I think the key reason for that is because like Infinity is a multi-dimensional game where uh, in, in which you're, it, it demands that you do multiple things, right? So I can math my way to the best active turn piece, but the best active turn piece is often irrelevant, right? And that's why Infinity is such an interesting game. Because, like, if I could just take five of the best guns and win the game that way, then it's not an interesting game to me. Because, it, like, it's literally mathable and that, that's it. But yeah. Infinity demands that you do objectives. And totally. because it demands that you do objectives, like, I can't just do that maths. Um, and I would also further point out that maybe this is a controversial statement, but I personally think that kind of B-tier, like, tier to Infinity is a much more interesting game right now than, like, A-tier Infinity. Because... If you handed me a nomads list and I was blindfolded, I could probably guess at least half of that list without, you know, seeing it. But if you handed me a kind of second tier, like US Ariadna list or whatever, I'd have like no idea because not everything is like really, really tip top, like obvious auto pick stuff. Um, And that makes the game like way more interesting to me because your decision space is suddenly much wider. Um, I'm not saying US Ariadna is necessarily the perfect example of that, but I am saying that there are certain like very very strong things out there right now where i you know people go oh i'm obviously taking two morans because they're morans um yeah everyone on, way less interesting yeah everybody on the internet's saying morans so i'm taking morans yeah, because right. i i yeah, don't absolutely. i don't know what this does for me and i yeah um i have i have two different frames of thinking about what you just said um i'll say the first one and then the second one is probably where it's just like uh, the four pondering. Everyone's going to come up with their own decisions on this one. Um, so first off, when we talk about B tiers, uh, I'm seeing a lot of tier lists come out. And mm-hmm. my biggest piece of advice for everybody is Infinity 
it doesn't really care about your tier. <laughs> like, yeah, I broadly agree. Like I you, broadly agree. you really need to know how to play the game to make an A tier, S tier list work. Um, if, uh, for instance, I'm I play U.S. Ariadna, right? Not a surprise. Uh, and it is often and has been for a while considered kind of like B tier, C tier. It's starting to climb up a little bit because the fire team rules are really helping it along in terms of list building. What that that doesn't mean that you can't win games. What what the tiers are talking about is relative advantage towards some sort of goals. But if you're a new player out there and you're listening to Whip Twelve and you're just trying to understand more about Infinity, play whatever faction you want. Doesn't matter where the tiering is. You just have to learn how to make it work. Um, but any Infinity list, any Infinity army can win and does win. Versus, yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I, I apologize. Like, I, I shouldn't have kind of brought that into it. And I no, no, no. I, I, my yeah. point here isn't to like, don't worry about tiers. There are other games, Warhammer 40k in particular, where the tiers are hard stops. Uh, right now, in ninth edition, in my opinion, um, it's really hard to break particular tiers. I play Necrons, um, and I'm I will just struggle because all of my pieces just can't do the same thing that my opponents can. I think Infinity, the tiering discussion is important because what that talks about is yeah. relative to each other, who has the most tools, who has the most options. Yeah, um, I think so. It's usually about like availability of options. Um, but I, yeah, I agree that the tiering is much uh, tighter in Infinity. Yeah, for sure. Uh, um, and my, my second statement, and one that is, I think everyone's going to come up to their own kind of conclusion... Uh, and that is, is it a sign of a healthy game if there are options that are auto-includes? If a game has options that are strictly better than other options, is that a sign that the game that we love and enjoy is complex enough uh, and contextual enough to provide different styles of play? Or is the presence of auto-includes an absolute superiority an indication that maybe something might be wrong because there's enough of a skew inside the meta, which mm -hmm. is just an infinite series of games, um, if there's a skew towards something like win rates, right? We can all kind of agree sure. that win rates need to hover around the, what, 50%, 30%. I know like Magic the Gathering win rates, mm -hmm. if a particular death list, deck list performs above like 60%, pieces get banned. Um, yeah. Warhammer right now has win rates 75, 80%, which is super abnormal, which I think is an indication that it, it's struggling a little bit. Infinity, mm -hmm. if you win every other infinity game like yeah we want to know how people uh mm. generaled their way you know generalmanship their way through a tournament winning every single one of their games but in yeah. general no faction irrespective of its player really should sit on top of all the other ones you know the mm. fact that i think vanilla nomads and shasasti uh combine sorry um kind of sit at the top of the pile is that an indication sure. that something has gone wrong um, I, I would also like to point out that no one actually has like convincing statistics to prove that. Like, I don't know if there's enough games to prove <laughs> like, that, to be honest. Yeah, 
we're all reasonably sure that this is likely the case, but I have not sat down or spoken to anyone that can show me like a thousand Infinity games and be like, here, prove it. For sure. Um, I, the, the Infinity player base just isn't big enough to do that. Um, versus, oh. you know, you have games like Warhammer where you, uh, you could go Warhammer Battle Report and get a thousand different groups producing battle reports where you could extrapolate yeah. data. They've digitized a lot of their tournament stuff. That's yeah, where a lot, a lot of that meta stuff comes from. Versus Infinity might have in every city like 10 people mm. playing the game, 15 yeah, right. people. Um, and so I'm, th- I'm not trying to be malicious by saying no. that. I'm just kind of pointing out that like, I think there's a lot of like internet wisdom, yeah. which is yeah, maybe fair. like, maybe it's true. Maybe it's true, but I don't know that it is. No, for sure. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, um, and I also don't, I don't know the answer. Um, I don't know if the presence of things that are strictly better and auto includes are an indication that a game is healthy or unhealthy or merely the way that the game is uh, intended to be designed, which is yeah, I think it's interesting. Like a really interesting spot, I think, to end this uh, particular discussion is like mm-hmm. we're playing a game that was designed intentionally by other people mm. and it's being balanced and it's being managed. So that yeah. my question is, uh, the state of the game that exists now, was that mm-hmm. intended to be uh, by Corvus Belli, the people who put it Ooh. all out? Was that really the, the way that they intended it to play? We're taking a rule set, we're applying our own analytics from our own areas, we're putting on different lenses, we're talking about strategic versus tactical, asymmetric, non-zero-sum games that are sequential with imperfect information, that are finite. You know, all, we're applying all these different tools, but at some point, you know, we can compare our homework and then go back to <laughs> our parents, basically, and go, are we doing this the way that you think we were going to be doing this? And then I, that, I think, is the um, the beauty of this game where it was developed by people, uh, handed out to other people, probably developed in a separate language, right? Like written in Spanish, translated into English, and then brought out its version four. So there's a lot of learned lessons in three and two and one. Um, there's all these different things that come to the complexity that exists now. Uh, and I would argue that the tightness of the tiering means that Infinity's in a really good space. Um, mm-hmm. The models aesthetically attract a lot of people in. Um, I have very rarely left an Infinity table having a bad time. Um, mm-hmm. And the times that were bad times, I have to admit, are on me. I didn't understand what I was getting into. Um, and the more people that I play the game with... The more fun that I've had, uh, it is very much a social game um, that causes people to start the conversation around math, uh, science their way to this piece is better than that piece, and this piece is you know the way that we should take it to the artistic of like, here's how I built this list, here's how the synergies work, here's my version, which, yeah. Yeah. and this is my final point for the evening, that is how art works. Art is self-expression. Yeah. And this yeah, is a way that you can express yourself through competitive shooting each other. <laughs> um, yeah, and like Infinity is a great game because it has room for that self-expression. Like even if even if a faction has a lot of auto takes, you still have room to jam in the pieces that are important to you above and beyond that. And that's why Infinity's great. And I, well, I, you know, I really enjoy it. 
And on top of all of that, people can still pilot themselves to defeat. You can take yeah. all the auto includes. You can take oh, all <laughs> you right. You can take all the pieces and you look at them and go, "Okay, folks, all right, team, you win me the game now." And then all you do is beans it. You make the wrong calls, right? Like there's there's so yeah. many pieces to this. I feel it. I feel it. Um, <laughs> where it like you as an individual need to perform well. Your dice yeah, need definitely. to play on your side, and That's then great. you also need to have a plan and then go violently execute that plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, that's all I really have for today. Was there anything else that you wanted to add in? I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot. It's been pretty interesting. And yeah, I think, I think it's everything. Great. Uh, then, as always, uh, my name is Logan. And I've, uh, you know, this is part one of a, I think, four. There may be five. We might do it in three. Um, as you can see, these <laughs> conversations go in many different directions. We follow the rabbit mm. hole. Um we're going to try and, uh, you know, finish these things in a reasonable amount of time. The next episode, we'll be taking some of these core definitions, talking about tactical decisions, strategic decisions, uh, comparative absolute advantage, uh, mm-hmm. imperfect information as we talk about core mechanics. So we're not even yeah. going to start getting into the specifics of individual factions. Um, we're going to talk about math. We're going to get into geometry, uh, in particular, the idea of threat area, um, the main idea, you know, a little a little teaser for the next episode, we'll be talking about how the weapon ranges influence decisions. You know, plus mm-hmm. three actually turns into a plus 15%. Uh, that yeah. has a certain radius around the board. What's the percentage? You know, if you park an HMG in the center of the board, what percent of the board are you? 15%? Are you minus yeah. uh, 15%? That kind of stuff is ways to think of how to make tactical level decisions and then all of the different pieces of equipment. And that's going to be a long one. Um, uh, after that, I think we'll start getting into combinations of um, uh, what's the uh, profiles with weapons there. Mm-hmm. That means we're going to start talking about faction sectorials. Uh, we may find ourselves one or two of the absolute advantage. Uh, we'll come up with some definitions like the best close combat. Um, that's pretty easy. The best ballistic skill shooter. Um, and then all the way at the end, probably episode four, will be the master class in Infinity is Art. Here is why. Uh, and here's how you can piece all this stuff together to express yourself in your list building and win every single one of your infinity games uh easy no guarantees on that one because as we've just discovered you could go in with the best plan and the right pieces and still beans it um so uh that's all for this episode of the whip 12 podcast thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time see you